Good morning, everyone. Uh, great to be with you this morning. We are continuing in our series that we started last week, going verse by verse through the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me to John 1, verse 4, and we'll actually reread a verse or two from last week, and then we'll continue with some new verses as well. Uh, last week when we started the series, if you were here, you might remember that we looked at the importance of the word, or uh, the logos in Greek, uh, what this meant in that day and age, and what John means by it. And this morning, we are going to continue in one of the most stunning prologues or introductions in the entire library of Scripture. These are the opening verses of John. We pick up in verse 4. John writes this. He says, In Him, in the Logos, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you as we step into this Advent season this morning that we have reason to have joy and we have reason to have peace. And it's not some fleeting, distant idea uh, or sort of uh, inspiration. It's actually much deeper than that, Lord. There's this uh, divine, sometimes hidden reality that has been uh, revealed to us, that has, has gotten its way inside of us by, by means of rebirth and the Holy Spirit. And as a result uh, of, of who you are, of who you revealed yourself to be, of the future we have out front, we more than any other people on earth have reason for joy and have reason for peace. We have, we have a source for these things that the world knows nothing about. And so I pray as we step into Advent season, as we contemplate this morning, uh, light shining out into an otherwise dark world, that we would find that light in ourselves, Lord, that we would find it sort of dancing in our minds and our hearts and in the very real places uh, that are the depths of our souls, the places from which all our other sort of words and actions and emotions and perspectives spring from. Would you touch those places, Lord? Uh, and, and I even think now as we're praying of, of uh, a well in the Old Testament that was bitter uh, and, and you uh, directed your people to do something to this well and it was made sweet. And, and just naturally then, the water that was drawn out of that well was sweet. Lord, may that 
uh, mark us, may that characterize us, that though we were born into a dark world uh, that is patterned around maybe bitterness, some anger, some outrage, some anxiety and depression, uh, that you, as we uh, step into your light, into your kingdom, would sort of make the well of our souls sweet, Lord. Not in a fake, superficial way, but the depths of our souls, so that what we draw out of that naturally becomes joy. Naturally, there's, that's just what's there. There's peace. Uh, and that can only happen in you. So would you come? Would you confront the things that are not of you, Lord, that we carry? And would you sweetly transform uh, the depths of who we are to be more like you? In Jesus' name, amen. The uh, Gospel of John is one of the most profound books in the New Testament and perhaps the most uh, existential, if we can call it that. John's ability to pack entire worldviews into a few short verses is unrivaled, in my opinion, in the entire library of Scripture. But what people have noted throughout the millennia is that it is also one of the most simple books in the Bible, and it is easily the most simply worded out of the four gospel accounts that we have. John has a way of writing that somehow uh, thrills the sages, and yet uh, he uses basic, universal, elemental concepts that anyone can grasp. Bread and water. Light and darkness. Above and below. Life and death. And this combination of simplicity and profundity is part of what has captured so many hearts over the centuries. It's been said that the Gospel of John is shallow enough for a baby to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in at the same time. It is accessible for children, for new followers of Jesus, and for complete outsiders people who have no understanding, no biblical framework, and yet you could devote your entire life to studying this books, this book, rather, uh, its themes, its implications, its imagery, and you might never get to the bottom of it. So whether this is your first time through the Gospel of John or your 90th time, you're going to encounter something new. In the verses we read this morning, John, in classic fashion, is using the universal imagery of light and darkness, life and death. He says God and the logos of God are life. They are light. He is the light of all mankind, John writes. And this uh, light is stepping into humanity in such a way that people will see it and they will need to respond in one direction or another. So this is both a source of joy, this light coming into the world, and yet in the very same breath we see that there's uh, a great potential for confrontation as light shines into the darkness. Light is stepping in, but how will the darkness respond? Will people run out of the darkness into the light with joy? 
or, or will they recoil back further into the darkness? Light is coming in. This is good news. But what will the result be? How is this drama going to play out? This is only John's introduction, but he's using it very powerfully to set the stage for what follows. The universal light of humanity is stepping into humanity, John says, and he's not without testimony. In the verses we read this morning, there's this almost abrupt shift from from John contemplating the eternal pre-existent logos of God, and then all of a sudden he's talking about John the Baptist. In like one verse, he just kind of jumps from between verse 5 and verse 6. So he gets to verse 6 and all of a sudden, he's just saying, hey, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And it feels like this sort of quick shift from universal, eternal light of the world to all of a sudden uh, talking about John the Baptist. We go from Genesis-like universal language all of a sudden to this one uh, person. But this is significant to the biblical storyline because John the Baptist comes as sort of the last true prophet in a long line of prophets recorded through Scripture. In fact, after 400 years of prophetic silence from God, the arrival of John the Baptist sort of stirs Israel from top to bottom. Many, many people recognize him as a legitimate prophet. He's got tens of thousands of people coming to him in the desert to be baptized. The eyes of the nation are on him with bated breath. He has their attention. He's a really big deal. In fact, he is such a big deal that the gospel writers have to remind people, quote, he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Meaning they're almost correcting this like incredible following that, oh, maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe he is the light. No, no, no. But he wasn't that, but he was significant because he sort of Uh, primed the pump. He set the scene. He prepared Israel to receive something of even greater magnitude than himself. So the world, or at least Israel, is being prepared to receive this long-awaited light. John the Baptist has their attention. Even the leaders and people from the temple are coming out to meet him in the desert and get answers from him. And thankfully, he is faithful in pointing to Jesus. So sort of, hey, all of Israel look to me. Now that I have your attention, look to him. And he points on to this light. But sadly, the results of light entering the world are not what you would expect. It says the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, this is my note, I think it's the irony of all ironies, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. 
The Gospel of John from start to finish is packed with irony. In fact, some would go so far as to say that the fourth Gospel account is irony. Just woven into everything that John talks about. Things simply don't happen the way that they should or the way that you would expect them to. And in a tragic, ironic twist, the world does not receive its maker. This is actually the story of the first Christmas. This is what happens when light steps into the darkness. Several chapters later in John 3, he writes it this way. He says, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. This is not the result that we were hoping for. A light shines into the darkness, but look what happens. And not only does this brilliant light appearing in a manger uh, sort of expose the heart of God to humanity, all of a sudden the, the heart of God, His nature, shines out. There's no more misunderstanding. This is, this is who I am. God is exposing His heart to us, but in the incarnation, not only does it expose who God is, more clearly than ever, it actually exposes who we are as humanity. Before that, you could argue, oh, I don't know, is, you know, is humanity good? Are they, are they not so good? You can kind of make a case. All of a sudden, the light shines in the darkness and it exposes our hearts. And sadly, it demonstrates just how far we've fallen. It reveals that the world is now a, a dark and inhospitable place. There's sort of this chilly, almost eerie reception that first Christmas. What happens when the light shines out? Well, humanity runs from the light. Where they try to attack the light, they try to stamp it out. Andreas Kostenberger one of my favorite commentators on John says it this way. He says, The world should have welcomed its creator as a familiar friend, as hero, savior, and king. Instead, it showed itself alien and antagonized, hostile, morally and spiritually dark, apostate, and fallen. Instead of a harmonious world, receiving its maker, who, who in a sense they already know but not fully and they're just anticipating, and yes, that's it. That's the God we knew but not fully. Instead, we get something very different. It's antagonistic. It is fallen. It's dark. Here's the one who is worthy of our eternal gratitude. But what happens the night he's born? Heaven is rejoicing. The heavens open up. It can't even contain rejoicing over light coming into the darkness. But in that same moment, the kings and people of the earth are plotting to kill him. And eventually, they succeed. 
It's tragic. There's a huge disconnect between creation and creator. Such a large disconnect that when he comes, our response is to kill him. On the one hand, creation is so dark and twisted that we actually project that back onto God. We assume, well, if the world is this dark and this twisted and this painful, then surely God is not good. That's sort of the, the secular struggle. If God was really good, then the world would not be this dark. So we've got that struggle, that disconnect on the one hand. How could God be so full of light while our world is so full of dark? And, and yet at the same moment, when that light steps into the darkness, there's, there's this human response to, to recoil, to retreat deeper into the darkness, to shield our eyes, to, to stamp out the light as it comes. This is what happens when light shines into the darkness. And just as in the original creation, God separated the light from the darkness, there's a sense in which God is doing that again here. As Jesus advents or appears or comes into the world, He is light, but he also at the same time separates light from darkness. He forces a decision. He drives the point home. You either step forward into the light or you step back into deeper darkness. You cannot stay neutral when it comes to Jesus. In fact, in chapter 3, Uh, From John, in the verses we just read, this is actually what it says right before those verses. John says, quote, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead. In other words, he's saying it's time for a verdict. It's time for a decision. The nature of this light appearing forces the issue. There is no neutral ground. You're either for him or you're against him. You run to the light or away from the light. You receive Jesus with joy or you reject Jesus and embrace despair. But you have to choose. When I finally encountered Jesus in my early 20s, Uh, I was coming out of atheism, and I very much felt this tension that John is describing this morning. I would say I had this experience. Uh, Eventually, I realized, hey, I can't just uh, think about love or try to be a moral person uh, or even sing, just sing upbeat songs from the Christian tradition. Like, that, that, that that doesn't work. Uh, I, I, I actually have to choose. And so over, I won't tell you the full story, but over the course of about six months, I began inching closer to this uh, Christian community. It was a small group that was on campus where I was going to college. So I was inching closer to Jesus through this uh, community of his followers. And there came a moment when we were worshiping 
and I was singing along to songs, much like the ones we sang this morning. And all of a sudden, in the midst of singing, I had one of those moments where it felt like Jesus was right there. Like he was right there in the room, standing next to me, almost leaning over my shoulder. And in the most loving way, he said, do you believe what you're singing right now? I thought, oh, I had to think about that. And well, yeah, Lord, I guess I do. Do, do you believe that I am who I say I am? I had to think about that. <laughs> yeah, actually, Lord, you know what? I do. I believe you are who you say you are. Okay, do you want to follow me? Yeah. All right, Lord. I I want to do that. I surrender my life. I want to follow you. But notice the nature of those questions. You, You cannot stay neutral in light of who Jesus is. And it's amazing when you uh, read the Gospel of John, he writes in such a way that he forces his readers to have an experience with Jesus. He, He forces you one way or another. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Will you receive it or reject it? Is this true or is this false? Is Jesus God Or is he insane? Will you follow him or will you not follow him? And throughout the Gospel of John, there are actually lots of people who get featured as characters in the story who try to stay neutral along the way. Probably the most famous is Pontius Pilate himself who is overseeing the execution of Jesus and yet is trying to remain neutral or innocent at the same time. And if you know that story, which we'll get to in like a year or something, um, it doesn't work, right? He tries everything he can think of to like, I wash my hands of this. I just want to be neutral. I don't want to decide for her or against him. Please, will someone else do it? And it doesn't work. He is forced to make a decision and, and, and be either for Jesus or against him. Uh, Along the way, many of the Jewish leaders try to follow Jesus in secret, and it doesn't work. Along the way, many of the Jewish people try to drag things out and stay neutral as long as possible. Hey, would you give us another sign? Hey, just one more sign. Hey, just one more sign. Hey, how can we really, really, really know that you are the Messiah? They're just dragging their feet. We don't want to make a decision on this guy. We want to stay neutral, and it doesn't work. There is no neutral ground. There is no, quote, safe space where you can just hang out and not make a decision. It doesn't work. There's something about the nature of his appearing that forces a verdict. And thousands of years later, within our secular culture, we're still trying desperately to stay neutral when it comes to Jesus. So we'll tell ourselves that God cannot be known. 
right? He's too great a mystery. No one could ever grasp him. He cannot be known. Therefore, I don't have to make a decision. Or we say, hey, all religions are equally true, which offends every religion, by the way. But they can all, they're all equally true, and you can just kind of do what you want. Then I won't have to make a decision. Or, or I'm seeking after God now, but I don't really want anything to do with Jesus. I'm going to ignore him, push him out of the picture as long as I can, which is ultimately the stance the Jewish people were trying to take, by the way. But what we see in the Gospel of John is that it just doesn't work. You, you cannot stay neutral. The light has arrived, and it separates the light from the darkness. You are forced one direction or the other. The time to make a decision has come. Now, tragically, in uh, an extra twist of irony, the Jewish people go the wrong way. The vast, vast majority of them. It says in the verses we read this morning, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. In other words, he came to the very people he was in covenant relationship with. He came to the ones who knew his name, who claimed to love him and worship him, and yet his own did not receive him. Not only did the world reject its creator, which is already sort of crazy, but the covenant people rejected their covenant God. The ones who they claim to be in special relationship with and have special knowledge of. In the Hebrew, this phrase literally means he came into his own things. And I won't try to pronounce it in Hebrew. But that's what it means. It's this image of like, these are my own special possessions. This is my home. This is my house. I'm coming in amongst my own things. And yet they do not receive him. And from this point forward, the Jewish people are actually stripped of the title, the people of God. This is a tragic moment. Paul weeps over this reality. He says, you had the history, you have the prophets and the, and the patriarchs and the promises, and he's just weeping. How could this happen? But from this verse forward in the Gospel of John, this is no longer the title for the Jewish people. They have forfeited it despite their rich inheritance. He says it no longer defines them. This is no longer who they are. There, there's a turning point in the biblical story, and from here forward there will be a new people of God, not based on nationality or ancestry or lineage, or morality, or even religious tradition. Saying none of those things count for anything anymore. John says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Everyone who receives Jesus for who he is, who steps into the light, 
who receives God on his own terms, he gives the right to become children of God. If you respond to the light by stepping into it, you are not just forgiven, as beautiful as that is. No, 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 it's deeper than that. You're, you're changed. You're changed, you're transformed, you are reborn, to use Jesus' own language in John chapter 3. He said, you, you become a new creation and you are part of a new family. You are no longer bound by the power of Satan, sin, and death. Through your rebirth, you, you are set free, you are liberated, you are made new, you are filled with the Spirit. The world rejected Him. His own people crucified Him. But, but in this, the purposes of God were being accomplished. And just imagine, just imagine, Paul says, if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? This is the verdict, John says. Light has come into the world. Will you receive that light? Or will you step back into the darkness? Let's pray. As we pray this morning, I'd invite you to just try and picture Jesus in your mind as the Logos, as the light, as, as the very source of life and light in the whole universe. And as you sense sort of the dark world around you and behind you and you see Jesus the light of the world coming into that darkness in front of you I want you to visualize yourself stepping forward into that light stepping toward him stepping deeper into a brighter, richer, fuller place of light in Him. And as you do that, I want you to take a deep breath and just pay attention to what's going on inside of you at the same time. Because most likely there are parts of you that are hungry for the light, starving for more of the light who love being in the light and odds are there are some parts of you that don't some parts of you that want to recoil that want to run those, those remnants of Adam and Eve whose impulse was to run from the light to hide from the light As you visualize yourself stepping into the light, if you sense there are bits of you that are resistant, that want to stay in darkness, that uh, 
fear coming into the fullness of the light, I'd encourage you to just name those things if you can. For some of us, it could be things that we've done or said or watched or, or habits that feel so deeply ingrained that we don't know how to leave them behind and yet in the same moment we're embarrassed to bring them into the light, to the fullness of the light of God. But for those of you who are feeling that resistance, I'd encourage you, just you and the Lord, to just name those things in your heart and your mind. Ah, oh, Jesus, this, this is, I see this, this is actually resistant to the light. Some of you, as you visualize yourself receiving that light, may realize there's maybe pockets of your life, sort of caverns of your soul, to use that language, that uh, maybe you've never invited the light into. You recognize, oh, Jesus, your light has transformed my thinking around, you know, money or sexuality or this or that, but it hasn't touched, it hasn't touched my bitterness hasn't touched my unforgiveness. It hasn't, I've actually never invited you to come as the light into this place. That's, that's holy ground. This is a moment for you to invite him into those places. If you're here this morning and you've never received the light, never accepted Jesus as, as Savior, as King, as the resurrected one who atoned for our sin. I'd invite you to receive that light for the first time over your life. For many of us in the room who have already made that decision, we're just saying, Jesus, I want more of your light. There's more. As we were, as we were praying before the gathering this morning, there was just this um, theme of joy and peace. What, is, oh, what are the things God wants to give you this morning? He wants to give you joy. He wants to give you peace. What's holding you back from that? He said, Jesus, I can't feel joyful because I'm not experiencing your peace because if you can name that, if you can fill it in, just say, Lord, I'm bringing it into the light. And in a moment as we stand, as we worship, as we sing, Lord, we're bringing it into the light. We, we don't want to be 60% in the light or 80% or 90%. Oh. If, if this book is accurate, we are children of the light. It's actually our new light. That is your identity the moment you give your life to Jesus. You are a child of God. You are a child of the light. The most natural place you could be is flooded with his light. Flooded with his light. So Jesus, we come to you now not recoiling deeper into the darkness as uh, our forefathers and foremothers have done. Uh, you've actually saved us, scriptures say, out of that family line, out of that legacy where darkness and sin were being visited to the, to the children and, and their children and their children after them. And Jesus, it actually says you've ended that. You've you sort of chopped us out of that family tree and that legacy and actually grafted us into a new family tree 
with a new identity, with a new legacy. And as a result, Lord, uh, we're not people who recoil. We don't run back into the darkness. That's just not who we are. Instead, as we celebrate your adventing, you coming among us, light shining in the darkness, Lord, we receive you as the light this morning. And if there are places that feel unfit to bring into the light, God, may we hear your heart, your voice of grace calling us with everything that we are, with everything that we have, with everything we've done and said or failed to do or failed to say, Lord, you want it all in the light. That's where we find wholeness. That's where we find healing. Our ancestors ran to the darkness, Lord, and the power of your spirit. May we come deeper into the light. So we do that now. We surrender to you. As we've been waiting, as we've been praying, as we've been worshiping, my hunch is that most of us in the room uh, are aware of maybe some pockets or bits that have yet to be transformed by the light of Jesus. Bits of fear, uh, recurring anxiety, bitterness, unforgiveness. I mean, we could just list markers that would suggest there's bits of us that can still be transformed by your light. So we come to you now, Jesus, knowing that your natural heart posture toward us is just arms wide open. He says, no, you're a child of the light. You come into the light. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there's also only one place you will find freedom. So we come now, Jesus, into your light, into your freedom, and we give you permission to come, to love, to touch, to transform, to shine your light into pockets of our lives uh, that, that make our flesh really uncomfortable, Lord. But it's the process of freedom. It's the process of us becoming more like you. Come now, Holy Spirit. Come, light of the world, and, and shine into the deepest places of our souls. Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to worship with a few more songs. Um, you can sit, you can stand, you can do whatever you want. Uh, if you uh, sense the Lord highlighting things, every time I do that, He highlights something for me. <laughs> every time. Lord, where, where can I receive more of your light? Where can I receive more of your life? There's, there's always something. So whatever that was for you, we're going to bring that before him. Over the course of this next song, the communion tables are open. So there's uh, some in the back and some up here. You can grab one of those and bring it back to your seat. We'll take it together after this next song. Uh, but one of the many things that scripture says about taking communion is that it creates a moment for us to examine our hearts. And remember, we don't operate in legalism. We don't operate in any form of religious morality. We're not under the law. We say, Jesus, I want to be more like you. I want to be where you are. There's that song that's probably from the 90s. I want to be in the light as you are in the light. That's, that's the cry of our hearts. Just saying, no, 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 you are light. You are life. I want more of you. Whatever's holding me back from that, it's, it's a ripoff. So that's how we come this morning. Over the course of this next song, uh, go ahead and grab uh, that, if you're new to this form of communion, there's a little uh, bread 
kind of cracker that's hidden in the lid. So go ahead and grab those over the course of this next song and we'll take it together as a family after that. <laughs> 